Hey, thanks again for joining us for another episode of A Third Way Podcast, where we're exploring the tension of following Jesus. And today we have a special treat, a very special episode. It's a little bit different than what we've done before. We just finished an interview with Michael Rodzina from New York, uh, Tribeca pastor out there. And we thought it would be a really cool treat today to actually play one of the messages that we referenced in the talk. Yeah, you know, we unpacked um, just briefly the idea of white supremacy. And we started talking about the construct of whiteness and hope to have some more conversations about what that means. I know that can feel challenging even to hear as a label, but it's important for us to understand. And um, our good friend, Michael Rodzina over at Trinity Grace Tribeca recently preached a message on this. And so we wanted to make that available to you. You can check out this message from his church now. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The gospel of our Lord. Before I offer my reflection on the gospel this morning, I'd like to invite us to uh, the practice of opening our hearts to God. So whatever you bring into the room today, it could be lots of faith and expectation and joy, um, but it could also be quite a bit of doubt and struggle or darkness. Um, whatever you bring into the room, bring your full self, um, because the reality is we, we often bring a wide range of those experiences. Just bring your full self to this moment and become present to God and present to one another. That's what makes a moment sacred. Um, so we don't take this moment lightly. We actually uh, charge this moment with significance when we come to it uh, present. Um, I will say we, we had a, a, a dinner just as a precursor to this practice. We had a dinner um, just sort of celebrating uh, the upcoming birth of our child, which will be our fourth child, uh, which is one way to live your life. And um, <laughs> we, uh, we, we were basically reflecting on uh, the blessing of this, and people were offering blessings. And uh, we did this practice where we would, we would say at some point along the way, I'm here. And someone would raise their glass and everyone would say, you're here. And it was a way to sort of acknowledge, okay, I'm, I'm showing up now. Um, and people did it at a different, different paces and like, some people didn't do it at all. But uh, it's just a way to acknowledge, are we here? And that's what this is all about. Are we, we present right now to God and to one another? Um, so we'll take a few moments to become present uh, to this this moment. Let's do that together.
perhaps you can focus on your breath uh, just as a way to uh, center yourself in your body and remember that God is the God who made the material universe, the world that we inhabit and that we experience through our bodies. And the word for spirit in the Bible is a word that is also used for breath, and it reminds us that God's presence is as near to us as our very breath. God, as we reflect on this text this morning and the story of Christ, uh, we pray that you would help us to connect meaningful dots between what we see here and what we observe here, what we learn here, and what we're experiencing in our own lives and uh, in the world that we live in. Help us to draw meaningful connections and to walk away with a sense of resolve, with a sense of courage, with a sense of faith, with a sense of hope, uh, with a sense of being able to receive a challenge. And we ask that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'm calling this uh, sermon Foxes and Hens because these are the two images Jesus gives us in this encounter, in this exchange. First, Jesus is told of uh, some plans, uh, and there, he's told by uh, some suspect emissaries, Pharisees, uh, people that he's been in conflict with up to this point in the story. Pharisees were sort of pop religious leaders. They didn't have a lot of institutional power, but they did have clout with the people. And as they come to Jesus, they warn Jesus that somebody's after you. And that somebody is Herod. And Herod uh, is, after being sort of presented as an imminent threat to Jesus, uh, is labeled by Jesus. Jesus says, go and tell that fox. Now, I don't know how Jesus said it. You know, at times I'm like, go and tell that fox, you know, like he's angry and he's about to, you know, rev up. Um, other times I'm, I, I see him saying it sort of coyly, like, you go and tell that fox. But however Jesus said it, um, we could probably, you know, go around the room and have our own impressions. Uh, I would love to, that would be actually a really fun party game. Um, but however you interpret Jesus' tone here, Jesus is calling out Herod as a fox with that metaphor. And then, after giving us a few reflections on that and his intention and his purpose with his life, he turns to a new, new image, and we're left with that as sort of the residual image for our imaginations, and that is this image of a hen, a mother hen, to be exact. And so the question that I'd like to ask at the outset as we reflect on these two images and this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees and his own disciples is this question of, what do we do and how do we react when we feel threatened? When someone is perceivedly attacking us, calling us into question, when someone seems to be coming against us, how do we respond? What are our instincts? What is the foundation upon which our life is built? These are big questions, but they are questions I think this story raises because Jesus gets news of an imminent threat. And I think we're meant to ask the question, how does Jesus respond to this? What is Jesus' posture? Now, one of the reasons that I, I asked this question and framed the question about threat is because um, of what happened this past week in New Zealand. 
Um, Karl Barth once said, it's important to read, the, uh, read to, to engage faith with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And uh, it's funny, I've, doing intro to TGCs over the years, one of the constant things that uh, people often come to our church uh, looking for is a meaningful engagement between those two worlds, those two texts. And so it would be, I would be remiss if I wasn't offering a reflection from this story and not connecting the dots to what's happening in our world. And thankfully, I think the connections are very rich and beautiful. Jesus perceives a threat. And as I was reading this week about uh, the story and the posture of the terrorist who committed the heinous acts in the two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, and as I started to read essays uh, that were published about extremism uh, from George Washington University and some of the uh, sort of the, the best and latest thinking about how these things occur, uh, what is fueling them and what is behind them. And then I sort of peeked into the, the rambling uh, essay that he left behind, uh, the so-called uh, manifesto. It's hardly a manifesto. To try to understand what, where does this violence come from? Where does this almost seemingly uh, indiscriminate act and superfluous act of violence come from? And when we consider Jesus here being told of a threat, we see a contrast between what we see in Jesus and what we see in these acts of terror. In uh, a recent study by Alexander Hitchens, we learned this of terrorists and extremists that he and other terrorists of various stripes see themselves as acting to protect their group with few others when few others are willing to do so, partly in the hope that their actions can provide inspiration for others to do the same, just as Breivik inspired him. And I started to think of how much of our violence and how much of our uh, lashing out has to do with our sense of threat. And it doesn't always take the extreme forms of what we saw in New Zealand, but it takes more subtler forms. And I think one of the dangers that we have is we face violence in our world like what we experience in New Zealand or what we experience at the Tree of Life Synagogue uh, or what we're seeing in any of our houses of worship, also connected to white supremacy in most cases. What we see here is something that we can't just simply distance ourselves from, remove ourselves from, keep, keep at arm's length, and dismiss as something as, that's on the fringe of society. I think these moments of violence are an opportunity, an invitation to consider what is this broader force in the world that is leading to these great moments of distress? What are the, the fissures and the fractures that are producing turbulence and stress in people's lives and imaginations that are producing these fringe movements. Jesus gets this threat, this imminent threat. Herod wants to kill you. And he replies, go and tell that fox. I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I'll reach my goal. But in any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Now, this is Jesus sort of like punching at and making fun of this rich tradition of Jerusalem as the center of religious power, as the icon of God's activity in the world for the Hebrew people. 
poking fun at the irony that it is the source of death and it is the source of resistance to God in the world. And so he's saying, you think I'm, I'm unsafe here in Galilee? Wait till I get to Jerusalem. Uh, I think the force of most of Jesus' rhetoric here is to sort of brush Herod off as uh, sort of a, uh, not a real threat. He's a fox. He's not a lion. And a lot of the iconography of Herod's court, by the way, this is a different Herod than killed all the babies in Jesus' narrative. This is Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was a politician. Uh, he was always uh, sort of enamored and curious of these like big popular movements. So John the Baptizer, Jesus' sort of precursor. Uh, John the Baptizer comes on the scene, and he's very fascinated with John. The texts and the stories tell us he kind of loved John, but then he gets stuck in this weird political position where he's at a dinner, and his wife uh, puts him in a weird spot, and he ends up having to order uh, John's death against his better judgment. That's because Herod Antipas was just a politician. He was looking for, in the sense of, he was looking to advance his interests based on the waves of other people's interests. And so when he saw a charismatic figure come on the scene, he saw it as an opportunity to sort of harness that energy and move his agenda forward. And only when he saw that his agenda couldn't be furthered by their agenda was he able to do violence or to put his foot down. And that's what happened with John the baptizer, and it certainly happens with Jesus later in the Jesus story. So this rumor gets to Jesus, and he's like, I'm not really worried about Herod. What I'm worried about is Jerusalem, but I want you to know that's where I'm headed. And that's where I'm headed resolutely. I'm not running from. I'm not trying to dodge or avoid persecution or suffering or confrontation. In fact, I need you to know that on this day and the next day, this is the work I'm about. I'm delivering people from the oppression of the world that we're all experiencing. I am helping people experience the healing of welcome and acceptance and inclusion into the community of God. And I'm going to be about that work until my work reaches its goal. We don't see an anxiety in Jesus, wanting to protect himself and protect his group out of a sense of fear. We don't see in Jesus a nervousness that leads to lashing out and hatred and anger. What we see instead is a way of seeing the world that isn't seduced by the status quo. It's not seduced by power and wealth, whether it's religious or political, but instead knows what he's up to. He knows his purpose. He knows his mission. And I think we do well to, to take our cues from Jesus, to have, uh, especially during the season of Lent, a reconnection with what our lives are actually about, with our primal calling as human beings. And when Jesus laid that out, he said, our primal calling is to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we're disconnected from that calling, that human vocation, we so easily shrink in fear or we shrivel into our in-groups and create the out-groups rather than leaning into the call of love, the mandate of love, even love of enemy. And it's this fear-based tribal mindset that self-protects, that seeks to uh, do whatever it can to defend itself against the perceived enemy that's often the source of violence in the world. And so whether it is this terrorist in New Zealand who sees immigration and sees uh, the sort of descent of the quote-unquote white population as a threat to his own personal identity, or it's others who see uh, the diversification of America as a threat on a status quo that they've enjoyed 
and have come to appreciate. I think it's important for us to think of how do we respond to threat? Even in political dialogues or even within the church in theological dialogues, when someone offers an idea or an opinion contrary to yours, where does your energy go? How is it expressed? How is it communicated? These are things that we need to learn from Jesus about. Jesus is resolute in his purpose, in his calling. And he's not going to be wavered by these sort of mantras of fear and threat. He's going to live according to the courage of love, come what may. And we get a sense here that Jesus knows what's coming. And in fact, he turns, he uses this mention of Jerusalem and this journey to Jerusalem as a pivot point to reflect on, oh, the plight of humanity. Why do we continue to circle back to these problems over and over again? Problems of uh, exclusion, problems of power abuse and greed, problems of violence that damages people's lives, all the things that could come under the banner of sin. Jesus says in 34, verse 34, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. Stoning, by the way, that's, that is a capital punishment language in the, in the Hebrew world. And so what Jesus is saying is, you are, you are executing capital punishment on those who have been sent by God to warn you away from your sin and toward the righteousness and justice of God's kingdom. He goes on to say, how often I have longed to gather your children together. Jesus looks at the landscape, this very divided, vitriolic landscape, where there are competing sort of movements within Judaism of who, uh, who will win the day, who will influence the people. And he looks at the Roman Empire and the Roman occupation and how power is being concentrated and used and how it's damaging people's lives. So much of Jesus' life and energy went to ministering to those on the margins who were the most vulnerable and the most damaged by empire. Jesus says, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. So Jesus introduces a new image. Herod is like a fox. He's sort of, uh, we would call it weaselly, right? Just after self-interest, uh, prone to manipulation and coercion, uh, predatorial in their end because they put their interest above everyone else's, and everyone else's interests are subservient to theirs. And when their interests are threatened, they flare up, and they act out, and they lash out. That's the response of the fox. But what does the hen do? What does the mother hen do in the face of threat? The mother hen calls out to her chicks. The mother hen gathers them under her wings and is willing to even lay down her life to protect the interests of her chicks. Jesus looks out at people, and he sees such a solidarity, the solidarity of a mother hen with her chicks. He sees such a rich connection that he has a protective instinct. And it's not protective in the sense of lashing out or doing violence in order to create some safety. It is the protection of standing against the powers that are corrupt, standing against the sinful powers of this world, speaking out against them as he does to Herod and as he does to Pilate and as he does to the Sadducees and Pharisees who hold religious power, speaking out against them but not lashing out in violence. 
holding the wing over the vulnerable and the marginalized, but not becoming like the fox in the process. And this is where we can learn, I think, a lot. It's so often that in the cycle of human history, the oppressor, uh, the oppressed becomes the oppressor. That the one who is being persecuted, the one who is on the margins, the one who is feeling the heat of power and wealth, when they get power, any semblance of power and wealth, they turn the heat on in the same means, and they lash out in turn. This is the loop of the fox mentality. And Jesus is giving us a vision of what does it look like, this beautiful, uh, feminine, divine image of God and God's instincts in a violent world. God's instincts in a conflicted, divided world. Now, it can sound really odd because what sounds more vulnerable in the face of a fox than a hen? I mean, if we know anything about stories and parables and fables, it's that the fox preys on the chicken, right? Like, there's, we don't look at the power equation of the chicken and the fox and go, oh, the chicken's got the power. No, we know the fox has the power in that equation. And yet Jesus identifies with the hen. What does that tell us? What does that teach us? I think when we look at our world, we think of our lives and the conflict of our lives or the conflict of our world, it's important to think, are we centered on our own interests and the advancement of our own interests? Or can we feel a solidarity with the whole that leads us to a protective yet nonviolent caring? It's strong. You know, the, the, you'll see, uh, I, I watched YouTube videos. If you want to like go down a really weird YouTube trail, like Google uh, mother hen protecting their chicks. It's a weird, weird zone, admittedly. But they're, they're not weak. There is, a, there is strength. There is a, a strength in the call and the voice. There's a strength in the, the body motion and the gestures. There is obviously a courage to protect the young. Right? This is not weakness. But it's still a vulnerable strength. It's a strength that certainly could be overcome by the power and the guile, and the manipulation of a fox. And yet Jesus is going with the hen, not the fox. What would it look like for you in your world, in your life, to go with the hen and not the fox? When you know your instincts are fox-like. When you know your instincts are to lash out and to lash back in kind. When you know your instincts are in fear to draw a line around your group, to draw a line around your people, to draw a line around your life, and to say, I'm going to protect this. I don't care what happens out there. And instead to become the hen who finds a connection and a solidarity and is able to find a protective instinct that gathers under the wing. One of the, the greatest pieces of wisdom that I received in the last five years was the wisdom of learning to listen. And it seems simple. And it took me meeting with someone who's way more important than me to actually take that seriously. But when I got that advice that, like, the thing I asked uh, someone, what should I do? If you were my age and you were leading and you were prioritizing your life in ministry, what would you prioritize? And they said the ministry of the ear. And I'll tell you, in the face of the conflicts of this world, as someone who is, you know, a white male middle-class, cisgendered, straight person in this world. I've had to learn what it means to listen to people different than me, to give room and space for their voice. And so in the face of something like what happens in New Zealand, it's important for me to listen to voices that aren't like me 
interpreting that event and the significance of that event. Now, what I've come to do is I've listened to these reflections, and I've, I've been studying and learning them over the last five years, as I've come to see that there's a voice that's largely ignored by people like me. And it's a voice that looks at something like ha what happened in New Zealand and sees larger trends at play that we're largely ignoring. And uh, it's almost like just calling a spade a spade or a fox a fox. I, I, I laugh because you could be like, Jesus, you're getting a little political here, aren't you? I mean, is it necessary to call like the, the key leader of the region a name? Now, I, I don't do that, and I wouldn't do that. But Jesus does it. And Jesus is able to do that from the perspective of the people that he's ministering to who are affected negatively by that place of power. And he has a protective motherly hen instinct when it comes to it. His own social location was one of poverty. His own social location was one of being on the margins. He was a poor Galilean peasant, a carpenter, a nobody. And here he is bumping up with the center of power. And one of the things that I've learned is um, not to do what my instincts are to do sometimes. Like I look at an act like what happened in New Zealand and I see that as uh, white supremacy, yes. But my temptation is to look at that as white supremacy is a fringe movement within society at large. White supremacy is a small faction of violent extremists who privilege their race over others and who are willing to do acts of violence to protect their sense of race their whiteness, quote-unquote. And what I, I had failed to do before these five, last five years really seriously was listen to other accounts of this. And so I want to offer this morning an invitation because we are largely a white church. Um, though we are diverse, there is, you know, just look at the room. And I think it's important for us to, to listen to the voices who are interpreting these events in different ways, ways that would maybe elicit in us a greater sense of responsibility and a greater sense of that hen, that mother hen instinct to use our power, to use our wings, whatever they might be in this world, to protect and to nurture. One of the great um, voices over the last 30 years within sort of race critical theory has been this idea that white supremacy is bigger than the fringe violent movement. That it's actually more in the air we breathe and in the residual systems that have existed since the civil rights movement. And there's a sense in which after the, the Voting Rights Act, when uh, African Americans were able to vote and the voting was legalized and their voice was legislated, that there was, and then with the death of Dr. King, that a weird thing happened. Um, those who fall under the construct, the racial construct of white, uh, were all of the sudden um, put in a situation where racial overt and aggressive racial behavior or, or, or uh, racist behavior was taboo. And so uh, it was sort of like gouch or taboo. And after it became taboo, like that's not something we do, it's not something we talk about, um, there, there came to be a sense of whiteness as implicitly anti-racist. Like the wealth, white self-understanding was, I can't be a racist. I don't engage in that periphery behavior, that surface racial behavior. And what it failed to take into account was the way that uh, people who, again, live with and under the banner of that illusory construct of white uh, benefit from that construct and have benefited from that construct over time. 
It often failed to recognize the way that people of color uh, have had to struggle in ways that people who are white don't. And that's not, of course, to go to places of pure equity among whiteness. In fact, uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. was doing his Southern Poverty Tour, he appealed to the poor white community, saying, you should join us. It's often the, the poor, uh, those in the poor white community who become extremists and become violent because they have the thumb of socioeconomic experience pressed down on them. And yet, there are those of us who've basically benefited from this, this tag of white. Now, that's not to make us feel guilty. What it is meant to do is to make us feel responsible. Responsible and have a solidarity with our fellow brothers and sisters who are people of color to say, we have work to do together to rectify this series of wrongs that was not perfectly dealt with in the civil rights movement. We've got residual work to do. And in some cases, the outcomes of you know, socioeconomics, the wealth gap, uh, mass incarceration, all of these things, uh, some of these things have gotten worse since the civil rights movement. And so it's upon us uh, as people who wear that tag to take responsibility for the ways that we consciously or unconsciously benefit from and participate in systems that privilege the white construct. And that's not, again, a threat to you. And if we take that as a threat to us and do uh, what we see Herod doing and the Fox mentality doing, um, we'll only create a, a deeper cycle of not hearing one another and not moving the ball forward in terms of justice and righteousness in the world. Instead, I think we're meant to have this openness to the margins and to the outside that Jesus has, this mother hen instinct that says, oh my goodness, well, what can we do? What can we do to learn? What can we do to uh, listen? What can we do to act in ways that are responsible and equitable for a world that we all want to see? We'd all love to see a world where the, the white racial construct does not play the role that it plays today. But we can't get there by ignoring the white racial construct. We have to own the white racial construct. We have to see it. We have to see it at work in ways that aren't conscious racism, the, ways, the things that are taboo that uh, most people who are white would never do. And so they dissociate from the violence of New Zealand. Instead, I think it's upon us, maybe perhaps especially during the season of Lent, which is all about the deconstruction of the ego, the deconstruction of the, all the projects that we create to give ourselves meaning and security and identity. Uh, Lent's a place where identity comes into question and is called into question. And we're meant to go, okay, how can we root our lives in the love of God alone and let that love take us where it will, even if it's to Jerusalem, even if it means divesting ourselves of certain privileges or power, even if it means uh, coming in the posture of a hen with the wing outstretched and being willing to lay down our life or sacrifice something of our life for the sake of another, someone who is more vulnerable than us. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came into the world, as he said, to set the prisoner free. Jesus said, when you visit the prisoner, you visit me. There is a, a lady who is doing a movement right now, a, Lent, a series of rent reflections. Her name's Christina Cleveland, and she's at uh, Duke University, uh, a wonderful, uh, wonderful human being who is a, a fantastic scholar. Um, she teaches at the Divinity School there, and she's doing a series of reflections called Christ, Our uh, Black Mother. And uh, I first heard that, and I was like, what? What does that mean? 
And, uh, and as I read down the, the, the list uh, of the description, I realized, oh, the thrust of this is to say, uh, you know, look at our social locations and to read Christ through our social locations. How many of you read the Bible growing up and you're like, always put yourself in the hero's perspective? Like, I'm always Moses being delivered from Pharaoh. I'm never Pharaoh, right? How many of us miss the point of the Bible and the Bible stories because we don't locate ourselves socially and we don't do the social locations in the biblical text? And so what's so important about what Christina Cleveland is doing is she's saying, in our world today, in America today, is there a more vulnerable identity than the black female? Um, And she says, those who are vulnerable in society and on margins of society have to learn to see Christ in themselves, Christ in their experience. And those who are closer to the center have to learn to see Christ in the other, have to learn to see Christ in the margins. And as we learn to see Christ in ourselves and in one another, we will come together in communion and union that is the fruit of love. This mandate Jesus gave to love God and love our neighbor. I love it because how comfortable are we with white Jesus? That's not controversial at all. You can show a Jesus that looks like Brad Pitt and you'd be like, eh, whatever, that's fine. But Christ, our black mother, whoa, what? I hear that in especially white evangelical circles. And it makes me just wonder, like, what is that about? And so today, as we reflect on, you know, the fruit of conflict and the fruit of race, uh, race conflict in our world, And we look at Jesus and Jesus' conflict, going to Jerusalem. And Jesus had racial conflict, but he also had other conflicts. But Jesus didn't run from it. He called a spade a spade. He recognized it for what it was, but he sort of had the night goggles on or the black light in the hotel room. Uh, That's a bad image. He could see... He could see what others couldn't see with the naked eye. He could look at Jerusalem, the spectacle that it was. His disciples are like, whoa, the architecture here, beautiful. Look at these stones. Aren't they amazing? It was an icon of wonder and and beauty and cultural heritage. And Jesus could see it for what it was, as a place that killed the prophets, as the place of resistance to the way of God, not the source of the way of God. And what would it look like for us Especially New Yorkers who, let's be honest, I am the chief of, among them who can get swept up in the narrative of, of New York strong and New York beauty and New York strength. We look at our skyline and you're like, oh yeah, that's pretty great. I come into the city from the airport and I'm like, I'm liking what I'm seeing right here. And I don't, not even in the sense of like, you know, the wealth and pride of it, just more of like the human creativity and ingenuity because there is something beautiful about it. And there is something beautiful about the temple. When human power and human creativity is corrupted by greed and self-interest and sin, it becomes dark. And Jesus could see that. And he could hold in tension the beauty and the darkness. And he didn't set himself against Jerusalem. He set himself as one who called out to Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you, only you, would, knew what, would know what makes for peace, I would have gathered you in. But here in this text it says, but you were not willing. And I wonder what it means for us who live in New York and many of us who live in lower Manhattan and those of us who have the power and the privilege of being under the banner of the white construct or the power and the privilege of being upper middle class or wealthy or what it means to own our social location and read the story of the gospel through the lens of our social location and to hear the voice of the spirit 
inviting us to repentance, the voice of Jesus inviting us to be willing to listen. May God give us courage and strength. There are many questions that are open, that need searching, that need researching, that need uh, debate and conversation. So I'm not here to solve any problem. I'm mostly here to create one. Right? That's what the prophets do. And I don't want to be sanctimonious and thinking I'm a prophet. Let me just say, I'm the chief of sinners in this area. I think that's the spirit of what Paul would write. And he would say, don't you understand? And he would challenge them and he would say, but me first, me first. And that's how I feel in this community, me first. Wrestle with me as I wrestle with the gospel in our social context. Wrestle with me as I wrestle with the gospel and our sense of identity, our sense of self. Wrestle with me during the season of Lent as I try to divest myself of all the things that give me a sense of self other than the love of God, the universal love of God for all. And I learn to rebuild a self in the way of that love rather than that fearful, self-protective fox posture. Let's become the mother hens. And as we seek to become the mother hens, we have to learn what it means to come under the wing of the mother hen. And that's what this table is all about. This table that we come to week after week is Christ's open, motherly arm of hospitality to all who would come, to all who would be willing to see this love that we see in Jesus and surrender their lives to it, to anchor and recenter their lives to it and in it. This is a table where we remember a body broken and blood spilled. And this wasn't like some honorific death. He was, he was the kind of person who died a criminal's death, a death of shame. As our creed tells us, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate as a reminder that Jesus didn't come in a, in a sort of sexy, glamorous way. I mean, he was on the very fringe, and those of us who associated with him were on the very fringe. They were looked at as suspicious. Jesus was on a lynching tree. And Jesus was cast out in society. And so we remember at this table that the kind of love we receive, the kind of love we embrace, is the kind of love that is often cast out, that is often ignored, that's often parodied as wishful thinking or pie-in-the-sky mentality and not practical. Now, the way of the fox is practical. But the mother hen posture is seen as that's really not doable. And we come in resistance of that. We come in resistance of that story and that way of thinking when we come to this table. So I invite you, my friends, to embrace the tension. I don't know what you think about what I'm saying now. Maybe you're like, this is insane. Why is he talking about whiteness during the sermon in, uh, in, a, in a church where I come to hear the gospel? And I would just say to those of you who are white, who have a problem with talking about whiteness connected to the gospel, maybe you don't understand the gospel. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I just mean like truly, like if that's a problem, maybe you haven't really connected the dots to this no distinction teaching that Jesus taught and that the apostle Paul taught, that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. And maybe we're not taking Jesus seriously when he confronts those with power and privilege. Maybe we see ourselves on Jesus' side when Jesus might be confronting us in love, not to make us feel bad about ourselves or, you know, guilty, but just to, to take responsibility, to get our humanity back. So I offer that to you in love. 
Hey, thanks for listening in. A Third Way podcast is a ministry of New Ground Network. Uh, we're so grateful for this diverse network of pastors and leaders that are a part of this and that are willing to dive into these conversations about the tension of following Jesus. We will join you back here soon.